patriots and lovers of liberty, this is Jim Cooper, and I'll be your host today for the Homeless Politicast. Uh, we have quite a few things to talk about today. Uh, not all of them news. There's some news. Um, it's kind of a slow news week. But I would like to talk in the second half about uh, doing a little series about obscure U.S. presidents. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about Martin Van Buren one of my favorite presidents. But before that, we're going to get right into the news. Uh, the first one is from the Detroit News, and it says, Governor Whitmer vetoes the GOP Bush push to end $300 federal jobless benefit. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed Tuesday a Republican proposal that attempted to opt the state out of federal unemployment programs that bring an additional $300 weekly benefit for those who lost their job during the COVID-19 pandemic. The governor's rejection of the bill brought disappointment for the GOP, who saw the measure as a way to boost the state's workforce. But officials in Lansing hope to continue broader discussions about changing the state's unemployment system. In a letter explaining her veto, Whitmer said she is open to discont discontinuing the match neighboring states. However, Whitmer said because of the current bill failed to garner the required two-thirds support uh, to uh, support in the GOP-controlled legislature to take effect immediately, it was moot. Without immediate effect, it wouldn't have the impact until 2022. Also, she said the legislation violated federal law by ending the payment of the enhanced benefit without the required notice of 30 days. Um, the, letter, the article goes on, if you'd like to read it. It's in the Detroit News um, by a, a man named Craig Mauger. And uh, anyway, it just goes in. She's trying to, to explain why she did it. I think this is a mistake. I was all for these enhanced payments and things during the pandemic. I seriously was. Because these people were not being lazy and refusing to work. It's not like, it's not like the, the Michigan people went on strike and said, we want more money. Nobody's going to work until we get better pay. This was, it was a pandemic, but let's put that aside. Whether or not it was a pandemic, the government forced the businesses to shut down. Regardless of the reason, regardless of whether it was good or bad or indifferent, whatever the reasoning was, whether it was because they just didn't want businesses open or whether it's because of the pandemic, it, it's irrelevant. The point is, the government shut down businesses and told people who were willing and able and anxious to work to stay home, to, to stop the spread. They told them not to work. They told them to stay home. They did everything but order them by penalty of arrest to stay in your homes. Do not leave. You know, we want churches shut down. We want businesses shut down. Everything shut down. These people then deserved some kind of recompense because it's no fault of their own. It's a government mandate that they have to stay home. Well, the government then has to help them out because we have bills that don't stop. We have to eat. We have to pay rent. We have to have clothes. We have to have gasoline. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess if your argument is you have to stay home, then maybe they would argue that you don't need gasoline because you're staying home. But still, you get my point. We have things that need to be paid. We need money to come in. So I was all for the government paying these people. Um, 
because it, it was an unfunded, essentially an unfunded government mandate. The government mandated it, but then wouldn't give the people the money. How are people going to survive? We don't want lawlessness. We don't want people out there stealing to eat. We don't want them stealing things. So in order to satisfy that, we have to pay them some funds for staying home. So I was all for these um, payments. But now that these restrictions have been lifted, people can go back to work. There's no, um, there's no lockdown provisions right now, or very few. Um, businesses are looking for people to work. Uh, we have to get the economy rolling again. The economy is not moving at this point. It's, it's very stagnant because people are hesitant to go out and get jobs for whatever reasons. We've talked about some of the reasons before. Not all of it is because they're all lazy, shiftless people who don't want to work. Some of it is that because the government has been screaming fear and, and the news media has been screaming fear that if you walk outside of your house, you might die or, or kill your own relatives, that there is hesitation just because the government flipped a switch and said, okay, now it's okay to go outside. You could go outside yesterday, but now you can. There's still going to be some people who are going to be hesitant because they've been, for lack of a better word, they've been brainwashed by the government and the media that it's a scary world out there. We don't know if we want to go out there and risk our lives and risk the lives of our families. So um, the economy's not picking up right away. People aren't going out and getting jobs. People aren't um, going out and eating at restaurants and going to movie theaters and and doing a lot of the th I mean there are some I'm certainly I'm not saying that nobody's doing it but it's not at the rate it was pre-pandemic and then of course you always do have some people who find it just much easier to stay at home and collect a paycheck than it is to go out and work so there are some people like that so my point in all this is that now we don't need to be giving that extra money for people staying home because now the people who are staying home are choosing to stay home. They're not being required by the government to stay home. So there's no reason to keep giving them extra benefits to stay home. Now we need to start weaning them off of it like a like a a mother bird, you know, pushing pushing her little birdies, you know, out to fly on their own. You know, you got to start pushing them out of the nest. Getting them ready. Because some of these people have been conditioned, and I'm not saying it's their fault, but they've been conditioned that that it's a scary place out there. The government needs to start weaning them off of government assistance and pushing them out of the nest and saying, it's okay, it's okay. You can go back out there and get a job. It's all right. You're not going to – it's not going to kill you. You're not going to kill your families now. Um, you know, we've got vaccinations out there. We've got – you know, we're going to have to live with this now. That's what they need to be doing. They shouldn't be pulling everybody back in the nest and saying, no, guys, it's scary out there. Stay here because that's not going to do anybody any good. It's not going to do them any good personally. It's going to be mollycoddled like that. And it's not going to do our economy any good because it's just going to screech to a halt at some point. We're going to see more businesses collapsing, more people going out of business because there are so, because there are so few patrons. I mean – Really, you know, in the place I live, I mean, you have five or six pizzerias. We have taco places. We have steak places. We have sit-down restaurants, fast food restaurants, hamburger joints. I mean, 
if they're all competing for like 1%, I'm just throwing that number out. I don't know what the number is. But if only 1% of the people, we'll just make that as simple. If only 1% of the people are going out and, um, and, and going to restaurants, then 1% divided among all these different eateries, you're not going to get enough people eating at each of those eateries to keep those eateries in, um, in, in, to keep them, uh, what the word, I forgot the word I'm looking for, but to keep them in, you know, keep their jobs going, to keep their businesses open. Um, so you end up with a lot of them going to have to shut down and then we'll end up with monopolies, which is also devastating where you're going to end up with only one or two businesses in the entire cities, in the cities. And then, you know, it becomes harder as time goes on to, um, for, for, uh, um, for other businesses to compete competition for competition to come into an area. Once everyone's used to now only going to one of two places in town. So, you know, we're going to see a lot more businesses shutting down and the economy um, maybe not screeching to a halt, but slowing down tremendously where we end up in a re severe recession, which we're already kind of in, but you know, it'll start to feel, we'll start to feel the recession right now. The recession, it's mostly on paper, although I think most people would agree that the economy is not that great, but we don't really feel it a lot, but if this continues, we'll start to feel the pinch where, you know, we'll start to feel the pinch where more people will be out of jobs and there won't be after a while, there won't be enough jobs out there for all the people that need it. So you're just becoming a self-fulfilling problem here. You know, we're not getting people off of welfare and unemployment. And then pretty soon all the businesses are shutting down and more people are on welfare and unemployment, you know, so it, it's kind of self-fulfilling and I'm very disappointed in the governor for doing this, we really need to weed them off. At the very least, she should allow it to slowly, like maybe if she wanted to say, I don't want the things cut out this month, but how about this month we we, we reduce it by $100 and then next month another $100 and then the next month another $100. And so until we've slowly gotten rid of it, that way people can slowly adjust to it. Almost like the analogy of the baby, the mother pushing the baby birdies slowly toward out of the nest. You know, maybe we don't want to just throw them off the nest in one fell swoop. In, the, in other words, we don't want to throw them off of welfare, but we'll slowly make it lower and lower for them until pretty soon they can ease the transition into a job where a job will be better for them to go out and work than it will be to stay on welfare because they're slowly losing more and more benefits at some point. You know, so... I mean, I can understand that maybe if she wanted to postpone it saying, I don't want everyone just thrown off just this month because they aren't prepared yet. Um, they're not ready uh, to make that sudden change. Maybe I might be open to that, but to say no completely, is just ridiculous. They, we need to start weaning people off of unemployment. Um, so uh staying on the subject of the election well i guess it's not the subject we weren't talking about the election but um but staying on the subject of local things uh 
the election next year, we, we're seeing some of the um, fundraisers coming in. I thought that James Craighead, the, the sheriff of Detroit or the former sheriff, whatever he is, I thought he was out of the election. But now we're hearing news that he's formed an exploratory committee ahead of, an ex of expected gubernatorial run. So I guess he isn't out of it. I don't know why. I can't remember now what the reasoning was that I thought he was out of the race, but he's back. Um, he's a Republican, uh, and he is thinking about running for governor, governor's race. But he hasn't yet announced, and so as far as I know, he hasn't been bringing in any fundraising. The Whitmer campaign, on the opposite end, has previewed her fundraising um, and she has raised $10 million for the reelection campaign. Um, I mean, that's a lot of money and it's still a year out for the election. Uh, let me just, let me just finish this and then I'll go back to that point. I was going to make there a second ago. The Republican candidate for Michigan governor Garrett Saldano, uh, uh announces he has raised more than $600,000 for his campaign. And his first campaign finance disclosure is due on Monday, next Monday. So we'll know more next week as to how much he's raised. But one thing I want to, you know, want to make clear, I mean, it looks like she's just blowing him out of the water. And at the moment she is, she's raising $10 million and he's got 600,000. But this is something that, you know, it was something that I wanted, that I, uh, I don't know if I pointed out on here, but I've talked to many people about last year when um, Donald Trump was raising tremendous amounts of money and had many people at his rallies pre-pandemic. He had a lot of people at his rallies as opposed to the, his Democratic rivals, and he was raising, out-raising them. Um, this is the benefit of running essentially unopposed, as Trump did for the Republican nomination and as Whitmer is doing for the Democratic nomination, because you have no one else to give money to. If you're a Republican, in uh, twenty um, in twenty nineteen, during the primaries, you're Republican. You're giving money to Donald Trump, but if you're a Democrat, you have like fifteen different candidates to choose from. So you might give a little bit of money to Joe Biden, or you might give a little bit of money to Elizabeth Warren, or you might give a little bit of money to, you know, Pete Buttigieg or whoever. So it's like the analogy I used about the one percent having to spread their money among a bunch of different restaurants in a city. You just don't have enough, you know, um, to, to spread. You, you have so few people donating and each business isn't going to make enough money to stay in, to stay in, to stay open. And it's the same thing here. If, if you're a Republican and you're just giving money to Donald Trump, you might only give $50 or hundred dollars, but you're giving it to one candidate. And if every Republican is giving $50 or $100 to one candidate, the candidate's running away with the money. And, but if you have 50 different, 15 different candidates on the Democratic side, well, you're not going to give money to all of them. So, you know, so you end up giving money to this guy. It's this guy's raising $1,500. This person raises 20000 This person raises, you know, you know, and they're like, well, but Trump raised a million dollars. Well, yeah, because there's only one Republican. And it's the same thing here we're seeing on the Democratic side. Republicans have several candidates that are running. We have this James Craig, we have Garrett Saldana, we have uh, Tootie Dixon, uh, um, 
you know, there's there's a number of other and a couple other candidates I can't remember. So, so it might seem like, oh well, she's out raising them tremendously. There's no way you can beat her. Well, that's not true because this is the primary. She's raising all this money, but she has no opponents. And you know, once the Republicans choose a nominee, all the money that the Republicans get are going to that Republican nominee. So don't be disheartened by the numbers and say that, you know, obviously she's very popular. She's obviously going to win. The Republicans can't bring in as much money as she can. The money has nothing to do with it. You know, as you saw in 2020, you know, the number of people at the rally or the number of people donating didn't mean anything. It matters on the votes. That's what that's what's important. The same thing here. Just don't be discouraged because she raised $10 million and Garrett Saldano only raised 600000 That has nothing to do with whether or not they're going to be – he's going to be competitive, competitive, whatever, competitive, competitive against Whitmer in, um, in 2022. Because if he gets the nomination, he'll have the full power uh, of the Republican uh, – the Republican – the Michigan Republican Party against uh, uh, with him and the power of all the Michigan voters with him. So it's still early. This just gives you a snapshot of where the campaign is. But really, I, I probably shouldn't even mention Whitmer's numbers, but somebody might ask about how Whitmer's doing. But the truth is, it, at this point, it only matters really how the Republicans are doing against each other because it will show you where the Republicans are going of who's got the momentum. And right now, well, Soldano is the only one I think that is raising money right now. We'll know in a couple of weeks after um, James Craig announces, uh, you know, we'll see a snapshot of where the money is going. Are people donating to James Craig or are they donating to, you know, uh, Garrett Soldano or they, you know, and if later if uh, Betsy DeVos or Ronna McDowell or one of these other people, um, jump in. It'll give you a snapshot of who's got momentum in the race. But for the Democratic side to say that she raised $10 million, I mean, yeah, it's it's important to see that she's raising money. But it doesn't give you an indication of how the race is going to be, the matchup is going to be between Republicans and Democrats in, in, the, uh, in the general election. So uh, I just want to remind you all of that, that it might sound like she's making a lot of money, but um, it doesn't indicate that she's going to be uh, unbeatable next year because her money will start to slow down. Again, let me let me just go back to 2019 with with uh, Joe Biden. Um, I mean, he really was very lucky to win the nomination because by the time he got to South Dakota, South Carolina. He was broke and busted, and that is the same point I'm making about um, Whitmer. He got a lot of money early on, and then, but people, everyone who donated to him donated the maximum they could. So when he started doing poorly in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, uh, new donors weren't reaching out and giving him money. So he had a lot of money at the beginning of the race. But by the time he got to South Carolina, he was really a dead man walking. South Carolina saved him. 
saved his candidacy because he had a win in South Carolina. And once he got the win, then people started donating to his campaign and it saved him. My point here is that Whitmer is getting a lot of money right up front from probably big donors. But they're not going to be donating every month to her campaign. They donated, we'll say, a million dollars. And that's their limit. They're not going to donate any more money. You know, we've only allocated a million dollars for the for the governor's race, hypothetically speaking. We're not going to spend any more of that. So we're going to give it all right now to Whitmer in the beginning because we already know we're going to support Whitmer. We'll give it to her right now. Where on the Republican side, you know, and so then later when the general election happens by next year, she might not be getting very much money coming in because she got all of her money early on. Where a Republican, as happened in 2019 with the Democrats, people are only giving small amounts because they're not really sure who they want to support yet. So they might give $25 to Sadalno, they might give $50 to James Craig, they might, you know, they're they're giving a small amount because they're just tipping dipping their toe in the water. They're not really sure who's going to be the nominee. They're not really sure who they, they want to stand with, but they want to support some of these candidates. But then as, as it gets down to one or two candidates, they've made up their mind, and then they'll start giving larger bundles of money to those candidates. So I'm just – I just want to reiterate that just because on paper right now it looks like Whitmer is, is just doing tremendous and she's going to win in a landslide, that's not necessarily the case. History has shown it, and contemporary history has shown it just um, last year in the uh, presidential election, we see that that what looks good on paper doesn't always result in the election. We can even go back to 2016 when on paper, all the, all the polls, all the trends showed that Hillary Clinton would win because on paper, it's how it looked. I mean, it looked like the momentum was on Hillary Clinton's side. It looked like the fundraising was Hillary Clinton's side. <clears throat> she seemed to have locked up the same, the same States and the same, groups that Barack Obama had locked up. So following those trends, there was no way she could lose because if she got all the votes Obama did, then she'd win. If she won all the states Obama did, she would win. If she, you know, if she got the same percentage of all the votes Obama did, she would win. And it looked like that trend was, was holding on paper, but the reality wasn't true at all. So that, that's what I mean. Sometimes on paper, things look like they're going a certain way, but the reality is it's not, it's not always that way. So I just wanted to reiterate that in case anybody gets discouraged and thinks that Whitmer is going to be unbeatable next year. Uh, I'll be honest. I think it probably will be a much tougher race than I expected it to be last year. It'd be much more competitive, but I don't think that she is unbeatable. I just think that it's going to be a tougher race than it would have been a year ago if the election was held last year. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to counter out and say that, oh, she's not going to win. You don't even need to bother voting. I mean, you know, she's going to win in a landslide. There's no point in the Republicans even wasting their time. I'm not going to say that she is beatable, but, um, but anyone saying the opposite that, Hey, she's, she's done for, she's totally cooked. There's no way she could win. Um, no, don't don't fall into that trap of assuming that she's going to lose. Um, it'll be competitive. I think she can be beat. 
but it will be competitive because Democrats are going to come out at full force uh, to, I, I, I think next year is going to be a competitive, it's going to be competitive both ways because Republicans are going to be motivated to come out to show their strength. They lost everything in 2020. They lost the House, they lost the Senate. Well, they, they already had, didn't have the House, but they lost the Senate and they lost the White House. They're going to want to show in two years that they that they're still a power in this country. They still have a voice in this country, and they're not going to accede power to the Democrats and say, "Okay, you guys have it." The Democrats, on the other hand, are going to be motivated to um, protect what they have. They have a very slow, mar small margin in the House. They ha only have the Senate by uh, it's a fifty-fifty Senate. They only the Democrats only have control of the Senate based on the vice president's uh, um, vote if there's a tie. And um, there's the idea of Trump Trump or Trumpism looming for 2024. So they want to squash that. They're going to make clear to the Republican Party, we are – that 2020 wasn't just um, an anomaly. It wasn't just because of the pandemic. We don't like the Republican Party. We don't like their point of view. So they're going to want to come out in full force to slap a lid on the Republican Party. Say we want to retain the Michigan governorship, the governorships all over the country. We want to win over governorships in states where we have a Republican governor. We want to get a supermajority in the House and the Senate. Um, veto-proof, uh, filibuster, uh, not veto-proof, filibuster-proof. So the Democrats are going to be motivated to come out. I, I don't think this is going to be a typical midterm election. It'll be much more like 2018. Usually midterm elections are boring. Hardly anybody shows out, comes out. It's just, it's really not an interesting race at all. This time will be, I think, will be a huge turnout with both sides wanting to claim victory to show that they have power in this country. It's not, you know, that 2020 was just an anomaly for Republicans. Say, hey, it's just we had the pandemic, people were unhappy, or they might say the election was stolen, whatever their argument is. And the Democrats are going to say, no, it's because people want to repudiate Trump and all of, and all of his beliefs, and we want to prove that. If we go back now, then it'll just make it look like the Republicans are right that it was just a fluke that he lost. So I think it's going to be very competitive. I think every race is going to be very competitive um, in the in the House and Senate and, uh, and in the governorships. So don't discard anything yet. Don't discard anything yet. All right. A um, little history lesson. We'll go back a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Martin Van Buren. He was our eighth president of the United States. You know, of course, most of you know who know me know that I've had a fascination with presidents most of my life. And uh, I'll tell you how it all started and how Martin Van Buren became one of my favorite presidents, even though he was a Democrat and he was um, – and he's a pretty obscure president. Uh, and he's not my favorite president because of his policies or anything. But let me let me take you back. Okay, picture this. 
um, President's Day, 1985, Missoula, Montana. That's where I was living at the time. I went to Willard Elementary School. And I was in fourth grade. I was about eight years old. And, uh, well, no, I was nine years old. Sorry. I was nine years old. And this was right after the Reagan victory of 1984, where he won every state but Massachusetts. And we prevailed at the Olympics. You had, uh, uh, oh, now I forgot her name. But anyway, uh, uh, this uh, Mary Lou Retton, that was her name. Mary Lou Retton was the Olympic champion. We won in the Olympics. She was she was on the Wheaties boxes back when they used to do that. On the Wheaties boxes, they would always have sports celebrities. And she was on the uh, Wheaties boxes. And everyone was just so big into um, – uh, America. I mean, everyone was just into America. And so for President's Day 1984, 1985, my elementary school teacher, my fourth grade teacher, had us do um, a thing on all the presidents. We were going, we only had about 20 some kids. And at that time we had about 40 presidents. So the idea was that we would have, um, that each kid would be assigned a president and then we would uh, um, and then for extra credit we could have another president so the president I was signed was Martin Van Buren and then for extra credit I did a report on Richard Nixon and of course I'm only in fourth grade so but my first one was on Martin Van Buren and I went over to the library and got out the encyclopedia and I looked up Martin Van Buren and so he was the first president I really studied or learned about. And I thought he was really interesting because he had these mutt chops. And I just thought it was really cool looking that he had these, uh, you know, this this sideburns that went way down and they flared out. And I just thought he just looked really interesting for a president. And he was really short. He was only like five foot seven or something. I mean, he wasn't a very tall, tall guy at all. And uh, I found out a lot of really interesting things about him. One of the things was that he was the first president born in the United States. And this means after we declared independence and formed a nation. All the presidents before then were born as British subjects, and they only became American later on. So I thought that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that he was Dutch. And he spoke Dutch fluently, and in fact... English was his second language, and uh, he spoke – that was his main language is Dutch, but he spoke English as a second language. And, I mean, he's just a really interesting guy, and he was from Kinderhook, New York. And the interesting – one of the interesting things that I found out about him was that he was friends with Washington Irving, having grown up. And the writer Washington Irving, who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and I found out that Martin Van Buren uh, was friends with a guy named, I think, James James Merck? Or, um, oh, gosh, now I can't remember his name. But anyway, he was, the, uh, he was a school teacher in Kinderhook. And... 
Washington Irving was asking Martin Van Buren about about some of the stories. He wanted to write a story about a small town. And Martin Van Buren told him of an old legend in that area about a Hessian or what we would today call a German uh, soldier who had been beheaded during the uh, Revolutionary War and that there was an old legend that at certain times of the year, this headless horseman would ride around and scare people in the town. This was the legend. And this school teacher had used to teach that in local history. It's kind of a fun thing for the kids to learn. And so Washington Irving decided to write the story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, based on that legend and based on many of, he changed the name to Terrytown, which was a town not too far away from Kinderhook. Uh, because one of the main reasons was because Martin Van Buren was starting his political career and he didn't want he didn't want his hometown to be about this legend of uh, of this of this of this Hessian soldier who rides around. He thought it would make them look ridiculous. And, you know, when he goes to run for office, that he's from this town that that believes this legend and all the silliness. So they changed the name to Terrytown. But he based Ichabod Crane which was an actual name of a soldier that was buried in that town after this James or the school teacher, James work or whatever his name was. And, um, and the fantassels and things in the story were based on, um, Martin Van Buren's extended family. Uh, they changed the name again. So I found that really interesting that the legend of sleepy hollow was incorporated with Martin Van Buren, which I thought was really fascinating. And, of course, Martin Van Buren served from 1837 to 1839. He was our eighth president. He had been in the, the vice president for um, Andrew Jackson. He was governor of New York for a while. He had a lot of really uh, interesting uh, experiences. Um, he was only governor for like a month. I mean, this is like really into politics. I mean, he was governor. He ran for governor in order to boost out the Jackson vote so that Jackson could beat could win um, New York. And then after Jackson won, he resigned as governor. So he was only governor a short time and then became part of Jefferson's uh, administration, which today would absolutely not fly. But, but he was very loyal to Jefferson and he was able to win uh, presidency on his own because Jackson was so popular. Uh, one thing that we all take from um, Martin Van Buren that we don't even realize is okay. His nickname was Old Kinderhook. That's what his nickname was. And he went by it a lot. So what would happen is when a bill would come to his desk, either when he was governor or later when he was president, he would, instead of signing his name, he would write okay, his initials. So he'd write okay at the bottom, meaning he was endorsing it. He was giving his approval. And so the staff and people in Washington started saying, do you think we're putting this bill on forward? Do you think it'll get the president's okay? Do you, you know, did you get the president's okay on that? It was, it was just a matter of his initials, giving his approval by putting okay on the thing. And somehow it just spread across the country 
to when you say, is that okay with you? Um, you know, you, you're giving your approval by saying, okay, you know, can I go to the store? Okay. Yeah. You're giving your okay. And that came from Martin Van Buren, which I thought was really interesting when I found that out that there's something, he's a rather obscure president, but some of the things that we do, like, and some of the things that we know, like the legend of Sleepy Hollow or the okay sign were actually because of him. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, his presidency was pretty uneventful. There was some problems with Canada. I do know that. His wife had died a few years before he became president. And I do know that he was so um, bereaved by his wife's death that he never married again. And honestly, he didn't speak of her in public. He didn't speak of her because it was so difficult for him. And he's the only president. And for years, people criticized him for that because even as a, when he wrote his autobiography, he made no mention of his wife in his entire book. And they thought that was odd, but scholars now know from other writings and other people said about him is that he just didn't want to talk about his wife. It was too painful for him to think about to think about her. So he just kind of forgot her. I mean, which is kind of sad in some ways, but he did love his wife. Although there were a lot of people who said he didn't obviously didn't care about her. One thing about Martin Van Buren that he was the first political animal. It's not one of the things I admire about him, but he could, he was a people pleaser and he could take both sides of an issue. You know, he could, he could, talk to one group of people and make them convinced that he was on their side and then turn around and tell the next group, which is the exact opposite thing and make them believe he was on their side. So he was very good at the art of, of telling you what you wanted to hear other nicknames for him, which weren't as um, nice as a, like a little magician uh, because he had the ability to trick you into believing what you wanted to hear. Um, the problem, there was a battle at Niagara Falls. That was the problem that I mentioned about Canada. There was a little battle that took place there. Um, and he wasn't sure how it was a small battle and it really wasn't between Canada and the United States, but there were Canadians involved and Americans involved. And there was a big cry by the Congress that he needed to send troops down there to support the Amer over there to support the Americans. And he just wasn't sure because it might, start a war with Canada and he didn't wasn't sure if it really was the right thing to do and that was his first real political defeat I should say he was relatively popular until then and then everybody kind of took a stand he uh, <coughs> so um, so he issued a proclamation of neutrality said we weren't going to get involved in that, told Canada we're not getting involved. And it ended up dying out, but there were still a lot of bruised feelings that, that he didn't come to the aid of Americans when they needed him. And it just, there was just a lot of people that either thought he was weak, cowardly, that he didn't have the back of Americans, that he was afraid of Canada and Great Britain, because Great Britain owned Canada, still does. He didn't want another war with Great Britain. Uh, 
and you know, this was only, you know, 20 some years or so after the war of 1812. So we really didn't want another fight. We'd already had the American revolution and the war of 1812. We didn't just want to keep having endless fights with, with great Britain over things. And then what killed his presidency really was the panic of 1837. We had back then we called them panics. Today we would call them depressions. Um, so basically, to put it in today's vernacular, there was a depression of 1837. The country fell into a huge depression, and uh, it started in Vermont, and the money supply, uh, the businesses and credit systems went bad, and then it it just started to spread around New England, and then pretty soon it affected the South with the planters and 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 these things, and so pretty soon the entire nation was uh, was in this depression. And it didn't last as long as our Great Depression, hence the reason why it's called the Great Depression and not just the Depression. Um, because it was, it was the Great Depression was worse than any other depression we'd had. But we had this horrible depression in 1837 and it continued for like four years. And so right in the middle of his election in 1841, we were still in the middle of this huge depression. And he got a new nickname at this point by, we didn't have the Republican party, but by the Whig party, that was the other major party aside from the Democrats. And they called him Martin Van Ruin. And that became the chant of Martin Van Ruin. He ruined the country. And, um, and he ran against a man named William Henry Harrison, who we'll talk about soon, another um, obscure president. And uh, But William Henry Harrison had been a general, and he'd been a very popular general in the Battle of Tippecanoe down in uh, uh, Florida or someplace. I can't remember exactly where the uh, – um, Battle of Tippecanoe happened, but he was very popular. And William Henry Harrison was the son of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He came from a long line of rich and powerful politicians. And what the Whigs did, which was very um, successful, was that they showed an image of William Harrison. He was the oldest man ever to run for president. And they made these images of Harrison sitting on his log cabin porch, whittling away with a bottle of cider near him. And they talked about William Henry Harrison being a man of the people. They disregarded the fact that William Henry Harrison was born in a mansion. And like I said, his father was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. They were one of the richest men in Virginia richest families in Virginia. But they, the campaign, this was the first campaign where they created images for the candidates, you know. And they created this image of William Harrison being a man of the people, the bottle of cider, because, you know, he just drank apple cider, you know, um, hard cider maybe. But, you know, he's just whittling away on his, the front porch of his log cabin. Meanwhile, they said, Martin Van Buren or Martin Van Ruin is sitting in the White House 
dining on gold-plated plates, eating feasts while the Americans suffer. He's drinking fine wines and champagnes, and, you know, he's one of these aristocrats who's just looking his nose down on the average people while he sits in his mansion, you know, his little palace. You know, and they kind of equated it to Marie Antoinette, and, you know, while the people starve, they're eating, he's eating large. And the, the truth was just the opposite. The White House, although at that time was the biggest house in the country, it didn't have all the perks that it has today. Um, it didn't come fully furnished. It didn't come with staff. So if you had money, you would hire a cook. You would hire maids. You'd hire butlers. But most presidents weren't rich back then. And you had to furnish all, all the furniture in the White House. So most people were rather surprised when they came to the White House to find that sometimes you had furniture left over from former presidents, but they were usually the stuff the former presidents didn't want anymore because they were all bad. By the time Lincoln moved in the White House, they talked about, I mean, the, the curtains were all just shaggy and dirty and ratty and, you know, and the carpets were all had the rats had had holes in the carpets and many of the rooms were unfurnished and the plates were all cracked and things like that. So the truth of it was that Martin Van Buren was not living the lap of luxury in the White House. At that time, you know, he didn't have servants. He didn't, he couldn't afford servants. He didn't have a cook. He didn't have any of these things. The house, you know, and so, so they, they really successfully made Martin Van Buren, who really wasn't rich. He was well off, but he wasn't rich. Looked like the aristocratic, fancy French, you know, he's a foreigner, Martin Van Buren, you know, he's Dutch. He doesn't even speak English as a regular language. And they made William Harrison, who was born one of the richest men in Virginia, part of this large family, born in a mansion, you know, who did drink fine wines and champagne. He's just a little old man, you know, sitting on his front porch drinking cider, you know, front porch of a log cabin where he was born and raised. And the people really voted for um, Harrison it really supported Harrison, but um, when it came down to the uh, vote, um, he actually only defeated Van Buren by less than a half a million votes. But, so it was kind of surprising because again, like we talked about earlier, sometimes what seems like a momentum on paper, actually when it comes to the voting, people vote differently. It looked like it was gonna be a Harrison landslide. But when it actually got down to the voting, Van Buren put in a pretty good, had a pretty good run, but that idea of Van Buren has stuck with the few people who do remember Van Buren. They remember him as being what, what the British called a Yankee doodle dandy, you know, and we'll get into that at some point of what the Yankee doodle dandy was, but that was a British term to make fun of Americans during the revolutionary war that he just looked like one of these rich, you know, not a real man. He didn't serve in the military, not like general Harrison, who was, a military man, he was a general, he fought the Indians, he, you know, a man of the people, and there you have this little dandy who speaks Dutch and, you know, drinks fine wines and champagnes, you know, and dresses with the latest styles from France, and, you know, and then thinking he's going to run, you know, run the country for another four years, when he obviously doesn't care anything about Americans, he's obviously got allegiances to other countries, and, and I just... I just found him to be a fascinating figure. He was the first president I really studied. 
And it gave me a real fascination for the presidents. And after that, I mean, I was nine years old. And after that, I started studying the presidents on my own because I found that each one of them were so unique and so different. And I th found it fascinating how each of them, their lives started off differently and they all wound up at the same place in the White House. And how did that happen for each one of them? How did some of them were born in log cabins? Some of them were generals. Some of them served in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Some of them became president because this person they served died in office or was murdered. You know, and I just found it fascinating. You know, some of them are from California, some from Michigan, some, you know, some from Virginia, some from New York. How did all these people wind up in the same place? And I just found that fascinating. And so Martin Van Buren is not my favorite because I loved his policies or I think he was a great person. Um, just my favorite because he was the first president I really learned about. And I just thought he was a fascinating, he just looked interesting and just looked like a fascinating guy. And I just thought that's really weird because I grew up in an era of television and I thought he just doesn't look like a president. He doesn't look like the kind of guy you would see given the State of the Union or see on the news, on the nightly news. Of course, at that time, they didn't have that, but I just thought it was really interesting. And then as I started studying on the presidents, there are other presidents that I'm more fascinated with, but I guess I should say there's a soft spot in my heart for Martin Van Buren, even though I wouldn't say that I like him the best. There's just a soft spot in my heart because he was the first president that I really studied. And he, I just found him to be really fascinating. So Anyway, that's our show for today. I uh, hope you tune in next week. Hope you all have a great week. And um, hope you tune in next week. And I'll talk to you then. Bye, everyone.